Welcome to Park City Church. You're listening to our weekly message, where we hope you'll be inspired and encouraged to know and follow Jesus and welcome and serve others. Thank you for tuning in. Acts 4, starting in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were the owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought it the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and bought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard of these things. We've been looking at the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of these first believers, the first church, right, the, the beginnings of the church. And, and we've been working with the sort of the working premise that while the book is about some incredible things that people do for God, that at its heart, even the book of Acts is about what God does for his people. And he does it through people, but more than this is a book about sort of the heroes of faith, it's a book about what God has done in Jesus and continues to do for you, for us, for his creation. And that will hold true in the story that Tyler read for us this morning. So if I were going to attempt sort of a summary of where I'm headed this morning, it's that the power of the Holy Spirit in this passage creates not only boldness, which we've seen over and over again, but also wholeness in the hearts and in the community of God's people, people trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I think we're going to hit sort of all of the component elements of, of that uh, summary this morning, remarkably in a story like what Tyler read for us today. I, I don't know about you, if you've heard this story before, I've chatted with a few of you. For those of us that this is a story we remember from childhood, it's, it's terrorizing, right? It's haunting. It's the stuff of nightmares, right? Nightmares, nightmares, night, nightmares. Uh, this sort of incredible act of uh, judgment that we feel in the passage, this, this, the, the exposure that is here, it's terrifying. But even if, like, this isn't a story you know, even if you're just sort of loosely, maybe, you know, you sort of have a conception of Old Testament, New Testament, you hear a story like this, you're like, I think, I think this story's been misplaced. 
This belongs in like Judges or some book of the Old Testament. This feels like the Old Testament. I mean, I visualize, it's not, none of this is in there, but I visualize Peter with like, he's like in a chair with like a thunderbolt, right? Like waiting for uh, just, you know, it, it has this feeling of, of uh, a haunting sense of, of terror, of, of fear. And, and, and then to, to just in case, you know, you're feeling comfortable, like they throw Satan into the mix. Peter's like, Satan's at work here. And it just immediately, it, 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 it strikes us harshly. We, uh, you know, we've been doing something called summer scriptures where over the summer, this is sort of the shape that group life has taken at Park City. We, we meet at Thompson Park and it's just sort of open, drop in as you can. We know summer's crazy and we've been sort of reading through the passages of Acts together. It's been a, a rich time when, you, when I've been able to be there and others of you as well. Uh, but in that conversation this week, the con- that we, 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 uh, kept coming back to the sort of move towards boldness. The Holy Spirit had, had done something in Peter and in and those first believers that l- lended itself, that resulted in boldness. God had worked miraculously in healing the man outside the temple. And these opening chapters, since chapter 3 or so, has been sort of the ramifications of that expression. They've been persecuted. They've been thrown in jail. They were released. And they went to the community of the church that they knew. And they prayed together. And the marks of all of those moments is boldness. Full of the Holy Spirit, Peter speaks boldly. Praying not for protection but for boldness. We see the Holy Spirit creating boldness in the lives of people trusting the death and resurrection of Jesus. But in our reading this morning, we see something else, that he also creates wholeness. And, and I'll make a couple of suggestions here. Uh, the first is that we'll just kind of take it paragraph by paragraph. The first paragraph that Tyler read for us is this beautiful picture. It's, 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 we are confronted with the beauty of gospel wholeness, what it means to be whole. But by gospel, we mean the good news, specifically the good news of Jesus Christ, that God has worked singularly in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that good news, uh, driving the community of people and acts more deeply into that good news, the Holy Spirit creates, works wholeness. I thought about doing Q&A, but I chickened out, and I was going to, you know, maybe put the paragraph in front of you and just ask what kinds of things you observed, what, what is happening in this passage, but instead I'm, I'm just going to chicken out and tell you the things that I observed. Um, I think, first of all, you mentioned a couple of times this reference to, right at the heart of it, it says that they're listening to testimony about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Right there in verse 33, it's the heart of it. And, and even earlier, it's, it's, it's those who believed. Well, what, what, what are they believing? It's, the, it's the, the gospel of the work of God and the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's the heart of, of everything that's happening around in this community. It's rooted in their rooting in this good news. But then you see the other elements here, right? I mean, there's generosity, they're selling property, they're taking care of everyone in their community. We read something like this and we think, rightfully so, would that we could get back to this kind of sort of experience of life and all kinds of, you know, uh, things worthy of pursuit here. But I just want to make a couple of observations under this point that the first thing we find is, is the beauty of, of gospel wholeness here. And, 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 and I just sort of generally want, to, want you to consider that uh, there's both a corporate and a personal picture here. 
We're given sort of the view of the community together, but then we zero in on the life of one person, Barnabas. And corporately, right, you notice there's some, just to give some specifics to what's happening here, they're selling property and giving, taking the, what they make from that and giving it, using it to take care of the needs, laying it at the apostles' feet to take care of the needs of the people in their community. And lest we think, I, I feel like the thrust of the passage and scholars have written about this, it's not as though they were just sort of giving from the surplus of their lives. Like that is not the tone and impression of the passage, in selling property and in, in, in sort of making these moves, it feels sacrificial. There's a relinquishing of maybe some things they had previously been trusting for security. Now they're, they've been holding to those things tightly. Now, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, they've loosened their grip on that stuff, and they're selling property. Others who have some are going to open their homes, as you'll see later in the book of Acts, and provide places for people to worship. There's, there's, a, there's a sense in which it's, it's sacrificial. It's larger than just like, oh, this is the extra in my life, and I can give this away. But also notice that it's, it's voluntary. It's not coerced. It's not commanded or compelled, com compelled, compelled, my Georgia came out there. It's not, it's not compelled in this passage, right? It, it's, it, you'll see it, we'll see it in a moment in Peter's interaction with Ananias and Sapphira. You, it was yours. You were free to do with this what, what, what you chose. There is no coercion here. These are some of the particulars, but if we were to suggest sort of a broad brushstroke summary, you might would put it like this, that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the people in this community have loosened their grip on stuff, tightened their grip on one another. They've, they've to put it differently, they've laid down the stuff of life and instead started picking one another up. It's a beautiful picture of wholeness in the community because of the good news of Jesus. But it's not just corporate, it's personal, right? Lest we like sort of dismiss it as like, look at this beautiful picture of these generic people. Luke, in telling us this story, zeroes in on one person in particular, Barnabas. And Barnabas, man, he's an interesting study. I, I know we've made the observation that like this is a book about God's actions for people. But if we were going to celebrate a person's actions for God, Barnabas is certainly on the list. If you keep reading throughout the story, he features prominently. He's not the main character by any means, but, but he features prominently, and these are some of the things he does. Barnabas is the first, or one of the first, to welcome and accept uh, Paul, formerly known as Saul, the murderous sort of pursuer and persecutor of Christians. One of the first to pick him up and welcome him. Is, is Barnabas. Barnabas will lead uh, the church towards diversity. When, when they're trying to figure out what to do, it's previously belonged to this particular ethnic group, and now it's moving beyond the boundaries and borders of the Jewish faith and people, and Barnabas will be a leader in picking up and welcoming Gentiles, leading them. Barnabas will be entrusted, such will be his nature, that he will be entrusted with, with material sort of financial relief that he will take and deliver to Jerusalem and the church there during a time of famine and crisis. Barnabas will be on the first missionary trip of Paul. Remember the, the formerly murderous pursuer of Christians, now missionary. Barnabas will be one of the first on the first journey. And along those journeys, when there's conflict within the group and division, Barnabas, Barnabas will be the one to pick up John Mark, restore him and welcome him back 
uh, into the mission of God. This, this Barnabas, we meet him here, and, and he's the one named that in his heart, the Holy Spirit is working such that he sells property and lays it at the apostles' feet and gives. Barnabas is a man who has laid stuff down and will again and again so that he can take others up. And, and just to be clear, all of this, this picture of the beauty of gospel wholeness, all of this sounds like someone in particular, Jesus, as described in Philippians 2 by Paul, again, former murderer and pursuer of Christians. He will say Jesus will empty himself, become obedient even to death so that he can take up God's people. He can work life and salvation. And that is the move. That is the, the, the movement of the Holy Spirit here as he roots this community in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That somehow in that good news, that gospel, that grace that God has, this is a story about what God does more than what you do, rooted in that. It's allowed Barnabas and all of these to let go of everything, to literally lay stuff down such that they can lift one another up. It's a beautiful, beautiful portrait, a beautiful image. And if we stopped there, if this were sort of the whole of the story, we might be tempted to read a story like this and think, awesome, he's going to preach about giving, <laughs> right? Like give generously. That's the application here. We should just live more generously, hold stuff less, hold people more, uh, and, you know, done and done. But, but in the context of what continues to unfold in this passage, I think we hear we're confronted with another truth and reality that on the one hand, we have a beautiful picture of gospel wholeness, and it is compelling and uh, worthy of emulation and pursuit. But, but we're given another picture as well, not just the beauty of gospel wholeness, but we see in this story the depth of human brokenness, right? You, you heard Tyler read it, Ananias and Sapphira, they go through all, they do all the things that we've seen in this first paragraph at the start of chapter five. They sell property, but, but we, we see something else at work here. They hold some of it back and bring some of it forward and give. And, uh, and then this, this incredible scene where Peter confronts them and there's judgment and, and we, we're left wondering what is going on? Um, you know, I, I, uh, it, it doesn't tell us sort of how Peter n knew. Uh, the assumption, I think, is the Holy Spirit was at work in his life, and there was discernment there. But it reminded me of, I think it's Malcolm Gladwell. If you're familiar with some of his work, he's done some bit of writing and podcasts. And I think one of his more recent works is called Talking to Strangers in the last few years. And in the, in the book, you can take or leave his research or his conclusions. But he's like, humans are really bad at knowing when people are lying sort of the working premise. We're just terrible at it. And he cites all sorts of examples. Well, you get the sense in which, well, nope, that wasn't true for Peter, right? <laughs> Certainly not for Jesus, whom we're told could see into the heart of, of a man. Whatever is at work here, however Peter is able to discern, we, we, we are confronted with a depth of human brokenness here that maybe would be more comfortable if we could just leave it off to the side and make it just about generosity. So just a little context, I think, to, to hold as we think about it. Uh, it the, you know, the intensity of this moment, I think, reflects of this scene, reflects the intensity of the moment in which they're in. You know, we're, we're you know, 2,000 years removed. The church 
has continued to be a presence in the world. But in this moment, who knew, right? Yes, they were growing and, and the numbers feel large, but in the scale of things, you know, this was new and incredible and somewhat remarkable. Who knew what would happen? And in fact, we saw last week, so as, as the security of this work of God in the world is perhaps in question, we, we find, as we saw last week, it's being challenged from without. Pluralism, you know, what's it mean to stand up and say, this is true of Jesus in a world where all sorts of voices are vying for truth? And how do you hold those things peaceably? Like, is, there's this conflict from without. But here, this, this reading, we discover there's also challenge from within. What, 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 what does integrity in this sort of fledgling beginning community mean? That the Holy Spirit is at work here, working not only boldness, but wholeness. What does that mean for the depth of human brokenness? And I, I want to suggest that that is a bit of what's at play here, why the stakes are so high. After such a beautiful image of the gospel, of grace at work in a community, this scene with Ananias and Sapphira falls harshly on our ears. But it raises the question, what exactly, what is the brokenness here? What's the brokenness in the passage, in in the lives of Ananias and Sapphira? Is it simply greed? Like we hear the story and we think, well, they were greedy. They should have been more generous. They just wanted to hoard the money for themselves. It doesn't doesn't say that. In fact, it seems to suggest that there's something else deeper or behind or underneath that feeling, that move. It's not Peter wasn't challenging them because they were stingy or because they were selfish. What was at play here? Well, I think it's the, the, the question I asked you to consider. There's... There's hypocrisy at play here. Who they are publicly is not who they, uh, who, who they sort of portray themselves to be publicly is not who they are privately. Hypocrisy, man, it's a, it's a favorite and legitimate reason to want to cast off faith. Interesting, interesting, even here at the start of the church, not a new problem, right? Not a, not a new sort of trait of the human life. But, but it still raises the question, why, why is hypocrisy a problem? I, I would ask you, in our world today particularly, where everything is crafted and branded and filtered, where, 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 and we all know it, we all confess it up front, why is hypocrisy a problem? Everybody is sort of putting up that front and has this interior life. Well, why, even culturally, do we get so bent out of shape when we discover and unearth this kind of duplicity, when we know this is the rules by which all of us are playing the game, even here in the pages of Scripture, why? I want to suggest an answer. Well, what's underneath? If, if hypocrisy is perhaps behind the greed here, what's, what's behind this move to put up one front and live another? I think in our text, I think the suggestion is, is that Ananias and Sapphira were, were concerned with sort of their relative status to the people around them. And they're having a good time back there. You guys are doing great over here, but I've just ruined it. Now you're like, I'm not going to hear anything else you say. Um, they're concerned. They, they're, not, they, they're not worried about being generous. They, they want what generosity says about them in the passage, in, in the community. It's not, it's not the concerns of, of, of being generous, but, generous, but what, what does generosity say about us? It's about their relative status and how it 
communicates and what it communicates about them in relation to the people around them. So, so in that instance, it's deceit, not stinginess, that is the fracture, right? That, that sort of behind the hypocrisy in their life is this deeper ache and need to sort of put up and find their worth in what, in what uh, their actions say about them to others. And so they're driven, this compulsion to misrepresent who they are, to appear as more generous than, than they are. And, and, and this is where I think the sting of the passage can land for you and me. Because you can, you, me, I, we, we can substitute whatever word is working for us for generosity. And the moment lands with, with a little more force. Maybe it's educational pedigree, position or job title, square footage, kids, appearances, physique. What do these things say about me? And consequently, I'm deriving some sort of worth on what this says about me in relation to you and the other people who maybe have these qualities or, or don't. It's relative status that is driving my need to present this particular front, but perhaps inside, things are not what they seem. What was it for Ananias and Sapphira? The honor of being generous in this first community the reputation, the desire to be perceived as pillars, as leaders, as examples. But at the heart of all of that, whatever that word is for you and me underneath the hypocrisy at the bottom of our hearts, I want to suggest to you that the reason it's bad is because it's a rejection of grace. It, it, it's, it's a rejection of the gracious gift of God to you and instead a reliance upon yourself. That in wanting to be generous, Ananias and Sapphira were, they were making a statement. In, in, want to be, in, in wanting to be generous because of what it said about them, they were making a statement about the grace of God. That, that, that they were forsaking the good news as good news. Now the good news is a good news plus package, right? It's like, yes, we have this beautiful thing that Jesus did, but also, look at me, I'm this kind of person. It's a Jesus plus sort of package. It's subtle. It's, it's a deceptive. It's a fracture that runs deep in the human heart. They needed something in addition to God's gracious act to them in Jesus. Approval, acclaim, self-reliance. I don't know. I don't know what it is for you and me. I probably have a better sense of what it is for me than you. But, but I'm aware of the depth of human brokenness as I hear the story this morning. The sort of fractured unwholeness in their lives that will play out in and around the community around them as they present one thing but in reality are another and if you know if that's not enough Peter says Satan's at work here and Peter would know right Jesus said to Peter get behind me Satan right? So Peter would know. He'd be, oh, yeah, I remember this, right? Like, uh, I've seen this move before. I know what's behind it here. Peter would know you get the sense in which Satan is filling them with the love of reputation, of approval. But Peter says there's another way. The Holy Spirit will fill you with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and with grace. And only then will you be free, Free from the need to use others to sort of prop yourself up. Free from the stuff around you to be able to pull others. Um, then you'll be free. He, the, the word we used last week was cornerstone. And, and, and Peter's drawing them and you and me into the conversation. What's on the other side of that plus 
for you. Jesus plus. Peter says that doesn't work that way. There's no life there. Folks have put it differently in all kinds of ways throughout history. Nietzsche said that there are more idols than realities in the world. The things our hearts crave above all others. Calvin, the reformer, said the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. The depth of human brokenness is that we're always living for some of these other things. But the grace, the good news of Jesus is that you're set free from that. All sorts of places we could go. came across a reflection on, you guys will remember the Bernie Madoff scandal of some years ago. Damage not only interiorly, but also to so many people in and around him in that Ponzi scheme. But reflecting on the moment, uh, one writer said of, of, of this sort of broken, the depth of the brokenness of his actions, it's not possible for him to atone for all the damage that he did. I don't even think that there is a punishment that is commensurate with the crime for the wreckage of lives that he's left behind. The only thing he could do for the rest of his life is work for redemption that he would never achieve. Like, you read that, he's like, man, maybe Ananias and Sapphira got off easy, right? But but, uh, in reflecting on this moment, one writer says, you know, well, actually, later, Madoff would acknowledge when asked sort of like how it got so bad, he'd point to a moment earlier in his career and say that it was pride, the, the pride, the inability for him to admit that he had made a mistake in the early days of his life. The need to be perceived one way was anchoring his life. And reflecting on all that was at play in this scenario, one author described, uh, described it like this, said, you know, a lot of times we wonder how Madoff could have done something so terrible. But, it, but he, he says, you know, honestly, Christians should not be surprised at all. And, and the, the, the re- he, he cites some reasons. He's like, I mean, think about it. It's a faith that is constantly reminded and confronted about the depth of human brokenness. We are not naive about the depth of brokenness in the hearts of others and in our hearts as well. You could just flip, you know, sort of flip through the pages of scripture. Abraham lies about his wife to save his hide and puts her at risk. Jacob steals his brother's blessing. Peter will deny Christ out of self-interest, right? There are countless examples, Ananias and Sapphira, as we read this morning. You'll see a few pages later in the story of scripture, uh, writing to the Corinthians, um, Paul will, will, will challenge them. The gluttonous Christians in the group had been sort of meeting together and eating all the food before those who were maybe uh, unable or who had arrived late could get there so there'd be nothing left, like in, intentionally so. And just a page or two later in Acts, as the church tries to distribute care to the widows in their community, they will do it in a way that discriminates against a, a particular group of widows in their community, even right here at the start. The conclusion in all of this, we should not be surprised that the depth of human brokenness, the human problem, he writes, seems to be we always seek for ourselves, care about ourselves, and invent ways of covering it up. Who am I in relation I think it's Tim Keller who says that there's a sense in which we spend our entire lives thinking we've reached the bottom. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's hypocrisy. We think we've reached the bottom of our hearts, and we always find that it's a false bottom. The depth of human brokenness in your life and mine cuts deep, which raises the question, what does the gospel say to that moment in your life and mine? I think it says a couple of things as we conclude. 
We heard it in our passage. It finished with fear, right? This incredible thing happened and people were afraid. We didn't read it, but in the next just couple of verses, it'll describe sort of the ongoing work. It'll be incredible. Incredible things will be happening. But it'll say this in verse 13. None of the rest dared join them. The people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. It's this tension. No one dared join them, right? There's like fear here. But then many were added. There's also growth. You, you feel sort of the twin pulls of the gospel. It's repulsive and attractive the same time in the words of the beautiful sort of familiar familiar hymn amazing grace it's grace that taught my heart to fear but grace is also my fears relieved what what what, what, what are we suggesting that the good news of grace the death and resurrection of Jesus is repulsive it's off-putting to everyone when our hearts are open and exposed, we are just as broken and flawed. It's, it's, it's repulsive. It leads to fear. Grace lead of this kind leads to fear and trembling. To the religious in the room, the gospel says, well, you know, you're a sinner who can't be saved by the quality of your behavior and moral performance. And so is repulsive. To the irreligious who have thrown it off in, in here or in your circles, it says, well, you're a sinner too. And uh, you have been called to something different. You can't stay there. It's repulsive. You, you can feel the tension to those who white-knuckled and, and holding on, wanting to control. It says you actually have less control here than you think. There is freedom to those who have given up and thrown in the towel. I, I have no control and consequently no hope. The gospel says that also is not true. It's repulsive, but it's attractive at the same time because seen at that depth the gospel says to you that God sees you to the bottom of who you are but then as the psalmist puts it loves you to the heavens no more rooms for games no more room for games no more relative status there's only one relative status that matters and that's your distance from me God says and everyone falls short of that everyone. But God says, that's okay. I'll cover that distance for you. I mentioned, uh, as we prepare to take communion, I, I, I mentioned a, a couple of weeks ago, I think, uh, the, the, the work of uh, Harrison Scott Key, who's a, uh, a Southern memoirist uh, in Savannah. And he had written a couple of books that I had enjoyed about his sort of life in the South. And then uh, his sort of writing career and pursuits, and he had just released a new one that uh, I thought it was called How to Stay Married, which, you know, I thought was interesting, and, and so I picked it up, and I uh, wasn't quite sure what to expect, and it's a, a rather sort of traumatic um, just telling of the story of the depth of human brokenness in his in his marriage, and writes very candidly, I haven't finished it, so I can't tell you how it resolves, but writes very candidly about sort of the brokenness at the bottom of his heart and his wife's and its implications in their marriage. But in the heart of this conversation, he says something interesting that I, I think pulls me into Acts as we close. He's, he says, I grew up hearing the remarkable axiom that God is love. That's the first John, God is love. Um, uh, and he says, you know, reading scripture in his life and at this stage in his life of brokenness, he said heaven and hell and smitings and virgin births and fishes and loaves. It was a story to celebrate and make sense of the strangest. It was all a story to celebrate and make sense of the strangest fact of all. 
that love, God's love is what saves you. The only love large enough to confess your failures. The only love large enough to enable the forgiveness of others. This, he says, is always what saves your life, your soul, your family, your marriage. At a moment previously in his, uh, in this telling of the story, there had been chat at the church he was a part of, of excommunicating um, members of the family and, uh, from, from the, the community. And he concludes here in this passage, the only thing that needed to be excommunicated from my home was the idol of perfect obedience, whether hers or, or mine. He was seen to the bottom of who he was. And what he discovered there was that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, there was grace and life. This is the power of the Holy Spirit, creating wholeness in you as well as boldness in your heart and in our community as we trust the death and resurrection of Jesus. Will you guys stand with me? We're going to close with communion. Thank you for listening to the Park City Church Podcast. To learn more about our church and or to find ways to get involved in our community, visit us at parkcitykc.com or follow us on social media at parkcitykc.com.